Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 38, December 6th through December 12th, 1861. Before we get going, just a quick announcement. I know the last time we posted uh, some Patreon content, that was a little bit late, this time it's going to be a little bit early, so by the time this episode comes out, the Patreon episode for the month of December will be posted. A little early Christmas this year. Uh, we are doing a memoir review. This one's going to be John O. Castler, and he spent four years in the Stonewall Brigade, and that is the title of his memoir. So some of the events that are Coming up here very shortly in 1862, as well as the Battle of First Manassas are covered in his memoir. So we'll be able to take a look at that. It's going to be good preparation as we move forward here. So be sure to support the show. Check that out for as little as $1 a month. You could be getting some extra content. Last week, we were able to put a wrap on the Mexican-American War. In addition, we talked more about the mentality of the common soldier. This week, we have a few events. We'll head to West Virginia and back out to Oklahoma. But first, we need to look back into what is going on in Washington, D.C. Specifically, this will entail the conclusion... I know we're a little bit removed from the battle, but the conclusion of the Battle of Ball's Bluff. I've purposefully held off finalizing this October battle until now because on December 9th, 1861, the Joint Committee of War would officially be voted into action by Congress. Now, what is this committee and why did they do that, you might ask? Well, as you recall, in the direct aftermath of the battle, there was a huge public outcry. Dead bodies floating down the river may tend to do that. In addition to the public, Congress was moved to action. Remember, Baker had been the only sitting member who also served in the army, and now he was dead. Rather than sit back, Congress would propose the committee to sort of track the progress of the war. Officially, they would inquire into the conduct of the Union war effort. By a vote of 33 to 3 on the 9th, the committee would go into effect, and it would include three senators and four members of the House. The driving forces would be Benjamin Wade of Ohio and Zachariah Chandler of Michigan. Also on the committee would be a Democrat, Andrew Johnson of Tennessee, from the senatorial side, which we will see Andrew Johnson a little bit later. It would be Chandler who would actually call out Lincoln for his decision to overrule Fremont in Missouri, essentially calling him white trash for doing so. The committee being set they would begin to look into the military defeats so far in the war, starting with Ball's Bluff. 
part of the reason, as we've already mentioned, is that they did not want to have a hefty amount of blame placed on Edward Baker. Baker, of course, was one of them that did not seem to sit well that he would be getting the blame for the outcome of the battle, which, as we saw in the episode on the Battle of Ball's Bluff, uh, he does actually deserve at least a good chunk of that blame, right? So there has to be a fall guy. But who is it going to be? Unfortunately, the sights would become set on Charles P. Stone. Make no mistake, the committee really wanted McClellan. McClellan was a Democrat, remember, and this committee was mostly made up of radical Republicans, with the exception of Andrew Johnson. So, taking a shot at McClellan, who they saw as an ineffectual commander, and part of this could be because of his Democratic tendencies. He was very soft on the populace of Virginia, and especially slaveholders, and he instructed his armies to make sure to return slaves who escaped uh, because they were property, right, in his mind. So that didn't sit well with them. So he was the target of this committee, but obviously they couldn't really touch him at this point. Stone was also seen as a McClellan partisan and almost as good as taking a shot at the young Napoleon himself. It would not take long for the friends of the fallen baker to heap the blame onto Stone. McClellan was due to testify before the committee, but was apparently too ill to attend. Other officers would give their testimonies, including those who served at Ball's Bluff, who it is interesting noted that the army had confidence in Stone. Only one, Colonel Tompkins of New York, would be negative towards the commander of the Corps of Observation bringing into question his loyalty. As we saw in the episode prior, there were those in those Massachusetts regiments who did not like Stone because he was complying with this practice that McClellan had put into place. The evidence would include some suspicious lantern activity observed the night before the assault, supposedly alerting the Confederates of their plans. This is pretty interesting considering the rebels under Evans would probably have been at the potential landing site, or at least you would think they would anyway if the Union plans were actually given to him in advance. Charles Stone would fully expect to be able to clear his name in his testimony, but he was sadly mistaken. It would not be accepted that Edward Baker had been at fault. Despite his eager disposition the day of the battle, One aide reported he commented of Baker that he would accept Stone's orders, but die in the process. You know, that's sort of kind of like a really uh, nice line for Hollywood, perhaps. Politics were also at play, as we've already mentioned. The radical Republicans would not be simply for restoration of the Union, and they would be for the emancipation of slavery. So anybody who they saw as a potential collaborator into that system like Stone, like McClellan, as we mentioned, is not going to be very high on their list of friends. This was definitely a strike against him. You recall Charles Sumner, right? He was the guy who got attacked by Preston Brooks and was caned on the Senate floor. Well, he took the reports on Stone personally, seeing how he was a senator from the same state 
that the complaint had originated from. During the examination, Sumner would imply that Stone was actively attempting to return these runaways, to which Stone actually does challenge Sumner to a duel. Now, they don't actually fight this duel, but obviously Stone, who went into it with good intentions and uh, very positive that he was going to get out of this, uh, obviously the tables are turned, right? Despite this challenge, the conclusion of the committee was to arrest General Stone, which is pretty wild. McClellan would urge the Secretary of War to have another hearing where Stone could fully explain his side of the story, illustrating how one-sided the affair had been. I've seen it implied that George only attempted to save Stone at this point because it was suggested he was next. Whether that is a fair assumption or not, I am not entirely sure. A second hearing was granted, and Stone does not do too well in defending himself, only lashing out further on his accusations of treachery. It should also be noted he was not given testimonies against him, so it's kind of hard, obviously, to refute some of the claims that are made against you when you are not given those testimonies, right? No, Charles Stone would eventually be placed under arrest in February of 1862. Amazingly, there were never any official charges filed against him. A military regulation at the time only allowed for an eight-day confinement without benefit of a court-martial. Charles Pomeroy Stone would be held for 189. Stone's is a sad story. Eventually, a congressional amendment would prove it unlawful to hold an officer over 30 days without trial, which you remember there was really no formal trial. Even after release, Stone was not given an assignment, simply being told he was no longer imprisoned. Eventually, he would serve briefly in the Gulf and Army of the Potomac, before resigning. After the war, he serves in Egypt and is buried at West Point. This whole episode goes to show that there were forces in the government at work that would be hard for officers. I've seen it suggested it is a great example of the power Edwin Stanton came to possess, the refusal of assignment for Charles Stone stemming from the Republican Party who were still pretty angry with him. As we move forward, we can continue to acknowledge there will be political pressure applied, especially when it comes to poor performance and general aims of the war. We can pop back into West Virginia to see what's going on there. We have seen some good Union success in this region, and I think the logical question would be, if there were all these victories, why not try to push into Virginia proper and maybe approach Richmond from the west? It's actually part of the McClellan War aims to cut off any sort of rail contact between Richmond and Tennessee and their western states, right? So this is something that is on McClellan's mind. But you see the short answer that they don't do this is because there are these things we call mountains that make traveling by foot difficult. 
and some people even climb them for fun, if you can believe that. An even shorter answer, which is the subject of this segment, is that they did try to push into Virginia. On December 12, 1861, Union forces under the command of Robert Milroy would attack Edward Johnson's men under Loring at Allegheny Mountain. This position was known as the Monterey Line. If you recall, this is where Johnson gets the Allegheny nickname from. Milroy was from Indiana, the son of an 1812 veteran. Before the war, Milroy had served with Indiana Volunteers in the War with Mexico before becoming an abolitionist Republican. Milroy is a great example of the divide between volunteer officers and those who attended West Point. Oftentimes, there was conflict here, as one could imagine. He goes on to command troops under Pope and George Thomas before resigning his commission in 1865. After the war, he will become an Indian agent in Washington. In 1861, troops under Johnson had established winter quarters atop Allegheny Mountain, protecting the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike. This is the same Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike that has been pretty important to some of these early battles in West Virginia. Obviously, there is a deficiency in roadways, so the main road in the Stanton-Parkersburg Turnpike was that much more important. This position was actually deemed to be a little too exposed, and an alternative further east was suggested. Remember, winter camps were more permanent, though. The Confederates have had cabins built to protect themselves from the elements. In addition, they had prepared fortifications in case of an attack by Union troops. Milroy and Johnson both were at brigade strength on paper, but due to the winter bringing on illness, both sides probably had far less in terms of able-bodied soldiers. Milroy would gamble, though, that the Confederate strength was severely hampered beyond that of his own men, in addition to being demoralized at the string of defeats suffered by the rebels so far. Skirmishing would occur on December 12th between the two sides. The author, Ambrose Bierce, wrote following the engagement that wild hogs had started to eat the dead from this part of the battle, which is a pretty terrible description and a reality of war in these heavily wooded areas. On December 13th, a full attack by the Union troops would commence. First, the assault would begin on the right flank. I've seen in some cases the Confederate line was put under extreme pressure, with some returning back to a new position at their cabins, but I'm not sure if this is all the way correct. Milroy would shift his focus to the southern left, and the right held firm. In a famous incident of the battle, a Confederate officer would believe that the advancing Federals were actually his pickets returning and actually yell out to them to hurry up before being killed. Johnson would prepare for an assault on the left by shifting his men, who had been on the right, to meet the Union attack. This worked well, forcing the Federals back, and even allowing for a southern counterattack. 
it was reported that Johnson was instrumental to the victory, leading his troops and encouraged them from the front. In this sense, he really does earn his nickname well. At the battle's conclusion, the Federals were returned to Cheat Mountain. Both sides had suffered some 150 casualties. While on the smaller side, the battle was significant in that it protected Virginia from further advancement by Federal forces, at least from the West. Now, we can check back into Oklahoma. When last we were there, the Loyal Indians, as they were known, were making a trek away from the territory toward Kansas. This band was led by Apotheleahoya and contained mostly Creeks and Seminoles. This party mostly consisted of women and children, combined with more poorly armed men. Giving chase were Texans under Douglas Cooper, along with allied Choctaws, Creeks, and Cherokees. Already there had been an engagement at Round Mountain. Tactical victory was given to the rebels, and the Federal Allied Band would continue to move north. Cooper and his troops would catch back up with them in present-day Tulsa County, Oklahoma. On December 9th, there would be a battle at Chusto, Tulsa. And do I know if that is pronounced correctly? I don't. Eh, give him my best shot, so please bear with me. This engagement is also known as Bird Creek or Caving Banks. Specifically, it is at a place along Bird Creek known as Horseshoe Bend. Just the way it flowed, the creek would provide protection. Much in the same way that the Battle of Round Mountain was thought, Apothalehoya would set up a defensive position to delay the enemy. I will confess that researching this battle has been a little difficult. There have been details in certain sources that only appear there and nowhere else. These smaller scale conflicts, while important, are often like this, where there is not a lot of information. I will do my best to piece together what happened. Before the battle, I have seen it implied that a certain number of Cherokee would defect to the side of the Union, giving them additional firepower. This may not be 100% true, but I think it does illustrate the nature of the fighting in this region, where sides will change. It actually reminds me a little of the World War I fighting in Africa, where native troops would often switch sides several times during the conflict, attempting to be lined up with the victorious power. Hopefully you knew there was actual fighting during World War I in Africa, but uh, if you did not know that, then there you go. At around 2 p.m., the Confederate forces would attack and attempt to flank the creek and Seminole positions. The defensive area that was chosen for this purpose was well-picked. Wooded terrain gave the defenders cover. A firefight would ensue for several hours. Most sources have that the defensive position held out, but certainly there was pressure applied by the Confederate forces. I've seen also that the Confederates were able to break the line at a certain point, causing many casualties and taking many prisoners. 
Now, that may not be true. What most sources say is that the rebels would run short of ammunition later in the day. This would allow the federal allied troops to escape and continue moving toward Kansas. Casualty figures are all over the place. Best I can figure, the Confederates suffered some 60 or so casualties compared to around 150 from Apothelia Hoya's force. There may have been additional captives taken, there may be there weren't. One source perhaps accounts for these figures and giving the total number closer to 1,000. Cooper claims some 500, but I find that unlikely. Regardless, it was seen as another Confederate tactical victory, forcing the Creeks and Seminoles to continue their retreat. Pursuit would continue, and the conclusion of the campaign will occur before the year is out. With that, we can call it a day. This week, we had a good couple of events. We continued the campaign in Oklahoma and in West Virginia. We also launched the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War. Next week, we will drop back into Kentucky and see what is going on in that state. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. The support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.